Uh, welcome to our newest episode of the Release Physicians uh, podcast. And today uh, is the first time we do the podcast in person in uh, Washington, D.C. at the George Washington University. Actually, that's where we're doing it uh, today. And uh, the title of our discussion will be discussing substance use in Lebanon and the MENA region and discussing also mental health awareness uh, in the region. Uh, my guests uh, today are Resha Abihanna, who's a PhD student in Amsterdam. And uh, she is in the clinical neuro and developmental uh, psychology department. And uh, she has a background in sciences, a master's degree in quality management and a diploma in mental health policy and services. And she has experience actually uh, working with the Ministry of Public Health in Lebanon on uh, mental health, health awareness uh, issues. And our second uh, guest is uh, Hala Najm, who actually currently is at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University as a Fulbright scholar. She will tell us a bit more about it. Uh, her background is a uh, pharmacist, and she has earned a master's degree in public health from the American University of Beirut. Uh, her interests are mainly in uh, awareness about substance use disorders and prevention. And uh, also we have with us Ziyad Khatib, uh, who is uh, currently an associate professor in public health at the Karolinska Institute and has a, a huge background in uh, epidemiology and in communicable disease tracking in uh, both developed and uh, low and middle income uh, countries in, in Africa. Welcome all of you to the podcast. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much, us. Khalid. Yeah, so this was such a big surprise. I was uh, contacting Ziad for, uh, to be a guest on the podcast and then turns out he's in DC for a conference. And then he met Hala and Russia at the conference and uh, we decided to do it in person for the first time. Uh, so welcome all uh, over here. First, I was going to ask Hala, you are into substance use awareness and prevention. So what's the definition of substance use? And do we call it substance use or substance abuse? Because you corrected me when I when I said substance abuse. So the new, the new terminology is substance use because abuse um, shows stigma. And maybe uh, Resha can tell us more about uh, the stigma and how it affects mental health. Uh, substance use is a disorder. It's a chronic disease. And this is why it is a use. So um, and this is the change in science actually in the medical field that it was uh, viewed as uh, behavior and people used to stigmatize behavior, but now it's a disorder because it's a lifelong um, progressive chronic disorder of the brain. Uh, so this is the definition, it's an addiction, uh, substance use is a disorder and it's an addiction to certain substances that are addictive mainly like alcohol, tobacco, um, opioids or, or pharmaceutical medications and among others. Yeah, which opioids is a big one in the in the US. It's right a now. huge one. Right. And and that's interesting, actually, because it's a, it's a disorder, because a lot of times you get patients with substance use to the hospital, let's say, and you try to a lot of times blame the patient for like not trying hard enough to to get off their substance use. But I guess there's also a brain component to it where it's very hard to get over this addiction. Yes, it's definitely a brain disease. And saying that, so do you know, because you were, you were in Lebanon until recently, can you tell me a bit about what you're doing here at, at VCU? Because I think you're here for a brief period of time right now on a Fulbright scholarship, and then you're going back, moving back to the region in September. That's right. So I'm here on a mission. It's a Fulbright scholarship, as you said, under the Hubert Humphrey Fellowship, which is for mid to senior career professionals. And uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University, which is in, in Richmond, we focus on substance use, prevention, treatment, and recovery. And what I have been doing here is uh, develop my knowledge, my skills, 
uh, even uh, policy analysis related and understanding what are the interventions or ex exploring the different interventions that are being implemented here in the US, supporting the US system as well from my, with my knowledge, because um, yeah, the US is marketed uh, as if it's the best country in the world and the most advanced interventions are being implemented here, while um, a lot is lacking as well. There are so many resources that are also not being used effectively. And this was also my role. And I am currently now, I just uh, got a, a job position with the Virginia Opioid Abatement Authority. And as you said, the opioid is a huge crisis here with the fentanyl crisis, uh, which is very specific to the US. It's not, uh, it's not a global crisis, it's right. an epidemic in the US. And there, there's so much funding that's being spent here on opioid. And I'm in, in my job as part of this fellowship, I'll be collecting a toolkit uh, of evidence-based interventions so that cities and counties in rural areas actually make use of these interventions in an effective way. So the funding that's coming goes in the right direction rather than going in, into interventions that are not effective. Exactly. And, not and, and in the right direction and the right place, I guess, because a lot right. of these issues are in smaller towns. And exactly. It started and in the, the opioid crisis started in Virginia in a rural area. This is where it started. And then this is where this is and then it went up to the federal level. So it started in a rural area up to the federal level and then the federal level down to the rural area. The rural area. And so do you know, because you've also been in Lebanon before, do you know what's the incidence of substance use in Lebanon in general and in the youth? Uh, in the country? So I can tell you that it's increasing and uh, there's a um, study that's being done by a team of uh, AUB professors on the on this matter and in 2022 it's still it's still under review. Uh, between 2019 and 2020 and this is where the crisis started there's an increase of 54 percent of cannabis use among adolescents aged 18 to 24 who are previous users, and the number for alcohol, tobacco, and pills are 32%, 70%, and 77%, uh, respectively. This is uh, by Dr. Randoul, who's a specialist in mental health and substance use among adolescents yeah. at the American University of Iowa. Yeah, I know Dr. Randoul, she's a good friend of ours. Oh, really? Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and she's been on the podcast before, too. Oh, okay. so. <laughs> yeah, so it's mostly non-opioid substance use in Lebanon. Yes, mainly in Lebanon, it's yeah. still it's still among, it's still methamphetamines, sure. alcohol. We have a lot of alcohol, a lot of marijuana, and now with this marijuana, new marijuana incidents, and yeah, youth are, youth view marijuana differently these days, and we really need to look into this, because it's it will become the next crisis, I would say. Right, right exactly. And, and uh, any idea about like substance use in the MENA region, like in the Gulf countries, or in the North African countries, or we don't have enough studies uh, in these countries yet to unfortunately to, uh, yeah. unfortunately there are no studies and yeah. um, because our culture doesn't allow us to say that substance use is a is a is a disorder then there's a lot of keeping it in the shadow so yeah. and the governments don't like to say that our youth are using substances so it's a struggle to actually get the information from governments and we really definitely need a surveillance system like the surveillance system that's here so that uh, like the DEA for instance or so so on and so forth that actually tracks the prevalence of substance use sure. among youth um, and throughout the conference just to add the, this idea is that um, I really like this Dr. Zili Sloboda said it. What is our most precious natural resource, resource in your opinion? And it's our youth and children. In fact, in, in Lebanon and in the region, we have 30% of our uh, population, if not more, are youth. 
So 30% are unnatural resources, and they, these are the future. So if we don't take care of our natural resources, resources, which are the youth and the children of tomorrow and our future, then there's something that's going to go wrong. Right, exactly. If we, and, and so, Ziad, since you're here, I was going to ask you the question too, and maybe, I don't know if you know the data in Europe, on substance use in Europe. I know you work more in communicable diseases, but maybe you have some I don't data. have the top of my head because I work more in prevention. Yeah, yeah. So I, I cannot answer, you this. answer the question. It's more um, because I, I focus on prevention for people who haven't used substance. Yet. Yep. So you're basically you're, you're focusing on preventing the use of uh, or, or substance use. Uh, we can talk about that uh, in a bit, I guess. So, so what what are some of the prevention measures that you you tend to take to well, prevent substance use? It's basically what uh, Hannah mentioned regarding um, the the youth is that. Uh, what are the different interventions that you can work with them to support them uh, and you don't talk actually about anything that has to do with drugs basically you talk about uh, resilience support and how communication skills and these are to, can become like protective factors for them how to um, be equipped they will be equipped with tools to be able to survive any life events so then they don't it will not leave them into substance use or stressful events and violence, just kind of all packaged together. I can add to what uh, what Ziad is also saying. So in prevention, uh, there are different levels of prevention. The first level is working, as Ziad was saying, on the child and on the skills of the child, the life skills and equipping them with the skills. And then you just have a few awareness sessions about uh, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, because the adolescent's brain works differently. Uh, if you give them an idea, they would go and explore it because this is, they're curious. This is how their brain works. So the less information you give them, they can find it online in all cases. So uh, the less information you give them, the more skills you give them is how this the prevention works. Uh, so this is at the level of the uh, personal level. And then you have the family-based interventions, which is also, so if you are equipping the child with, or the adolescent or the youth with the skills needed, and then he goes or she goes home, and doesn't have the environment to actually apply this, or she's going home to a place that's not safe, or so on, uh, or there's no positive parenting. In other words, then there's no much use to the to the skills that you're giving at the school or at the personal level. And then you have the community-based intervention. So once you finish from the family, then you can work on the community. And these are a set of other interventions. And then you have the policy level interventions, which are related to alcohol and uh, age, or uh, not having alcohol or tobacco selling, uh, selling spots around uh, uh, schools or universities and, and so on and so forth. So, so there, there are different levels of intervention and nothing works uh, as a silo. So if you silo one and you, and you just, doesn't, you don't take it as a comprehensive approach, then um, it's less effective. Right? Yeah, so basically, so basically, the more interventions you add, the more effective yes. uh, the prevention exactly. is going to be. Exactly, right? Right. yes. And part of it probably is at the school level too, right? High schools and... Obviously, schools. all age. Yeah. Prevention starts uh, okay. during pregnancy. Yep. yep. It's not when you're 15 or 16, no. Exactly. It's too late. <laughs> it's never too late, but it's... And, and, and Russia, since you worked at the Ministry of Public Health, so first, actually, can you tell us, can you tell us what your work has been in Lebanon uh, and then what you're doing now? 
Yeah, so previously I was uh, the at the National Mental Health Program, I was the service development coordinator. So I was more uh, coordinating projects within the primary healthcare, within the hospitals, and we had also other services related to self-help, like an application that was developed by the Ministry of Public Health with WHO and other partners. So my, my work basically is to coordinate these projects to make sure uh, it's according to uh, evidence-based. Uh, we, we had some monitoring and evaluation indicators to make sure that this was delivered uh, to the people in need as well as other capacity building program for nurses and uh, general practitioners, because we were trying to integrate mental health within uh, the general health facilities, including primary health care and hospitals. So this was part of my work within the ministry. Uh, now I'm working with uh, an organization actually remotely uh, from Lebanon, uh, the name of the organization is ISAP, the International Society of Substance Use Professionals. Uh, my work is within the scientific department. So I'm I make sure that like the latest research are on our website. We review the webinars, uh, like we we do networking for people working within the substance use uh, field. And uh, like we make sure that like everything is evidence based, we have certain quality practices and policy and like ethical practices that are ongoing. So basically, you're trying to push for policy change within the Ministry of Public Health in Lebanon, right? Yeah, this was uh, the project, like the the mandate of the of the National Mental Health Program. Uh, this was like based on a strategy. Uh, by the Ministry of Public Health. So the Ministry of Public Health issued actually two strategies. One is for mental health and the other one is for uh, substance use professionals or substance use in general. It's it's called interministerial uh, strategy. And this one was done with the uh, Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Higher Education uh, and MOSA, Ministry of uh, Social Affairs. Okay. And so what what are what have the outcomes been so far like have there been any laws implemented or have there been any uh, tangible prevention measures implemented by the government for this or is it more on a NGO level or on a on a, on a society level Yeah yeah actually the work of the national mental health program was really to uh, to make sure that there is this collaboration between the NGOs because NGOs are receiving funding for projects and the ministry will make sure that there are no parallel systems or parallel projects that can affect the end outcome of giving the service for everyone. So, so mainly it was to coordinate the work and just to answer your question about like the strategy has different domains one of them is leadership and governance. It's more about the law. The second one is about the reorientation of the services, where I just talked about the integration of mental health within the other healthcare facilities. Uh, the third one is about media and prevention. So also the, the National Mental Health Program was working towards like increasing awareness uh, and like adding, putting advertising about stigma related to mental health or substance use. So this, this is the third do domain. 
The fourth domain is uh, regarding health information system. So also the ministry was working to establish a platform where everything will be automated and like linked to the ministry. And the, the fifth domain was for vulnerable groups. Uh, vulnerable groups, including pregnant women, including people who have missed persons that we don't know what are uh, their, like, where are they? Yeah, especially during the war. That yeah, happened. yeah, yes. exactly. So this one is for vulnerable people, including also LGBT uh, refugees and other uh, vulnerable population. So th this is the domains. And like the ministry was working towards different domains. And I can tell you a little bit about the law related to substance use, if you want. Uh, yes, we'll talk about it. And uh, so, Ziad, I'm going to ask you about this question. But Ziad, is this uh, are these prevention measures similar to what's happening in Europe right now in terms of prevention? Yeah, absolutely. So in Europe, they focus a lot on what is called the uh, environmental policies. So, for example, when it comes to schools, how you can. Uh, prevent, uh, make sure that you have an uh, environment that's clear from crime, let's say, around the school environment or nightclubs, night, nightlife, how you can ensure having uh, quite good control around them. So this is the environmental policies. And uh, inside the schools as well, what type of programs you can have uh, for, the, for the children during this age, like early age, which is like the six six and nine years old so different there are different programs and every environment has a different type of intervention is needed so indeed when you have it as a holistic approach this is where you can have strategies but in europe you know many countries exactly. and every country they can have also different policies it depends on the right. municipalities right. there's a lot of variation of course so it's hard to tell like the whole europe right Similar to the U.S., I guess, because you're also you've got different states, and each state has its own separate policies, or each county has its own yeah. separate policy. That, yeah. that that is correct. And so, yeah. So now let's talk about the the law. Uh, so how 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 have the have the laws changed yet, or are we are there plans to implement changes to the law? Yeah. So the use of narcotics and psycho psychoactive drugs without medical prescription is classified as a crime in Lebanon, uh, with an imprisonment sanction varying between three to uh, three months to three years. And uh, Rumi, Rumi prison. <laughs> no more, no, no more spaces there. <laughs> yeah, best case scenario, actually. <laughs> Uh, for for the drug law, actually, in uh, 1998, it provides the person arrested or prosecuted for drug use with the option to be referred to a ministry, ministerial committee. So it's called the Drug Addiction Committee. It has the authority to offer the person the option for treatment. So if someone wants to, to be treated instead of to be in jail, he can, uh, like, he has the right uh, to do so, and uh, the other uh, the other law that I I could uh, tell you about is the in 2010 the MOPH issued the decision uh, 849 for the safe organization and provision of OST. So these are mainly the the laws that, as you see, in like the the last one was in 19. 98 and this 
this considered like a bit not updated. So now like the, the National Mental Health Program is trying to update the law uh, according also to its strategy. But you know, like in Lebanon, the law will take yeah so there is like a draft law that is uh, within the the parliament but for now like it's it's not issued and, and hello are you involved in in uh, in these efforts i'm not involved in advocacy for a law i'm more yeah. into substance use prevention among children adolescents and young adults but i am definitely in the loop of what's happening so uh, but Considering that the first law that uh, that Russia mentioned was um, issued in 1998, this shows that Lebanon was an advanced country back then. And then we were discussing before coming that in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, there was a circular that was sent out to judges, um, just uh, uh, reminding them that there was a law in 1998 that gave the right for people who are using drugs to, um, to choose treatment rather than being incarcerated uh, because it was not being implemented. In 2020, so in the 20th century, it was not being, 21st century, it was not being implemented. So this also shows that Lebanon is going, unfortunately, spiraling downwards. Still. It's still yeah, spiraling yeah. downwards. And this is affecting the increase in substance use among the, 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 next, gen, the next generation as well, which is sad. Uh, but again, the National Mental Health Program has been doing a great job in trying to put these efforts together, put the funding together, uh, and trying to make things more uh, structured and avoid the duplication. And she and Russia was also mentioning about the OST, which is the opioid substitute therapy, uh, which uh, is the treatment for people who are using drugs, and it is under the control of the National Mental Health Program. So there are measures that are being taken, and there is an intention for a lot of efforts to be done, but with the political instability that we have and the economic instability, it's really hard to keep things moving the way we want them to move. Yeah, because a lot of it is more like individual efforts or NGO efforts to improve things, but there's a lot of dysfunction at the government level exactly. that does not allow this exactly. to happen. There are higher priorities. So. Yeah. Let me tell you an example of this. So we, uh, we as uh, the organization I work for, Mentor Arabia Foundation, which is a regional organization, we're trying to work on a prevention program for schools with the Ministry of Education in Lebanon. And then COVID happened. So their priorities definitely shifted from prevention, which is development of their skills, to education and trying to figure out how to educate like the basic education of children. So the priorities are shifting, especially with the economic crisis and with the Lebanese Lira's depreciation rate and... I'm, I guess you know that uh, uh, employees are not very um, very enthusiastic about going to work, especially public employees. Exactly. So that's also another another thing to consider. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle that we're into. That some people want to work, but then there are so many obstacles that are affecting that. Right, right. And and shifting just slightly to mental health awareness, uh, which is the other topic that that you've been working on, uh, Russia. So uh, how is mental health awareness in Lebanon now and, and uh, what's being done to improve it? Because I think a lot of people, probably it's better now, but a lot of people don't like to go to CC psychiatrists, psychologists, because they're afraid of the stigma of what's that going to cost for them. And also they may not have the money to, to see them. So Yes, yes, that's right. Actually, 
do you what you need to do in this uh, in this regard is not really a one level action so you need to target uh, many levels starting by the law again you need to uh, renew the law or update the law because because uh, it's it's really outdated regarding for example involuntary hospitalization so people can take um, or carers can take anyone from their family to to a, to a hospital without their consent and this is approved by law and they can like keep this person forever in the hospital uh, so we need to start by the law uh, we need also to do the awareness as you as you said so the, and the awareness should be for the general public should be for the doctors and the nurses and also for psychologists and uh, psychiatrists the other level is regarding self help uh, techniques and self help awareness because the stigma starts really from from the self so if if we want to focus more on stigma or talk more about stigma, there are embedded levels of stigma, starting by self-stigmatization. So the person will feel, oh, if I go to the psychiatrist or the psychologist, they will say I'm, a, I'm crazy. Uh, if my family knows about it, also they they will uh, do some pressure or they will they will uh, discriminate me. So it starts with the self. And then there is the family uh, stigma, uh, where family doesn't help uh, like the person to go and seek help. They just hide the condition of the person. Uh, and in one of the projects I was doing for my PhD, I did uh, many interviews with patients. So uh, one of the women I interviewed, she said, I don't want my husband to know that uh, I'm taking medication because he may divorce me, he may leave me. Uh, another one said that her brother, when he knew that he, she was taking medicine, he threw the medication from the window. So so here you, you see like there, there are no support from the family. So this is the second level. The third level is uh, the community and uh, also the, the, the organization, for example, the primary health care center or the hospital. So we also interviewed nurses and general practitioners who said like they don't want to co cooperate with those uh, violent patients. So th they see them as violent. They they don't want really to um, to screen for mental health disorder. And this is where the ministry was doing a lot of training for uh, nurses and doctors. And the the third level is uh, the structural organization where the law will not help the person also to to seek help or uh, to give to give them the rights so it's like also four levels that are, that needed uh, to be tackled and this is where like this is part of of my first paper about stigma where i explained what are the interventions that needed for every level exactly yeah, so stigma is a big thing, I think, in the, the whole Middle East region, not only in Lebanon, but do you see that stigma in Europe? Um, I think stigma is like a problem for some, usually for humanity in general, especially when it is for something that people don't see. Um, like I have worked in several topics and what I have seen is that when people like see blood, 
I feel more sympathy than or broken bone. But when it's something that you just described, there is some stigma around it because people don't see it. They have certain thoughts about it somehow. And I think this is where the role of education comes in to have more understanding to what the patient can go Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And just to add to an example to what you said. So if you see someone who's, who has a broken hand, you will not say, you're okay, uh, don't worry about it, you, you will be fine. However, sometimes people tend to say to other, like de- people with depression or people with anxiety, you're fine, nothing is going on, and this is all on your ha- in your head. So yeah, this is exactly what uh, what we are like seeing in the in the community. Yeah, similar to what Hala was saying, I think about substance use too, because you tend to say it's it's your fault and it's in your head, but it's also I mean the brain is an organ too, and it can be it's like the heart, like the lungs can be damaged too, and it's the same thing. I think you don't see a broken bone. You can see a broken bone, but you cannot see a broken brain. Right, you cannot see a broken brain. That's, that's why that's it's more. That's exactly. Stigma. That's exactly. a stigma about it. And it's about behavior. Stigma is about behavior and and um, shaping the behavior. And there's also normalization of a certain behavior uh, and not another. So what Lebanon is trying to do, at least from the efforts, is trying to normalize mental health, that it's part of your health. Physical and mental health are the same. They are equal. They are equivalent. You have the same way you check for your physical health, and then you go to the general physician or whoever family physician for tests blood tests you also have to check for mental health and you were asking um, um, Ziad about mental uh, about stigma in, in Europe but I can say here in the US and I've seen it that there's a, so much stigma around mental health there's so much stigma amongst, um, uh, around substance use as well here in the US and I was really um, surprised to see that because this is not how we see it in from our lens in the Middle East we see that the Western world is more uh, advanced in this, but in fact, um, it's not really the case. Yeah, Unfortunately, that, yeah I agree. So it is me- a global issue. Stigma is a global issue. Yeah, I think it's probably the Western world is more advanced. Just one thing, maybe that there's more laws, uh, maybe that 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 tend to protect right. individuals, exactly. but but the stigma is still there. Exactly. Right. I totally right. agree with you. And so, uh, Rasha, you're currently now in Amsterdam, and you were here at GW, I guess, for six weeks, and now you're leaving next week, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, we just met today, but uh, <laughs> so what were you doing here at GW? Yeah, so uh, I'm a visiting researcher to the, to the Center of Global Mental Health Equity at uh, GW uh, School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Uh, I'm working with Professor Brandon Court on uh, the implementation of anti-stigma interventions in a global context. And this was part of uh, a grant that I received from uh, Vrie Universiteit from Amsterdam. So they are helping students to go abroad and visit researchers and to learn about a certain topic. So, uh, yeah, I uh, I submitted a proposal to come here to GW and it was accepted. Uh, and therefore, like, I, I've been here for six weeks, as you said. I worked on the outline of my paper. It should be the, my last paper for my PhD, hopefully. And we'll continue the work, like, when I'm back to Lebanon. So when are you moving back to Lebanon? 
Actually, this Saturday, it's tomorrow. <laughs> I'm just trying not to think about it. <laughs> and this, you're going you're gonna to move back to Lebanon and continue your job with the Ministry of Public Health there? And uh, Yeah, so I'm just continuing my work on my PhD and like my interviews with the National Mental Health Program, but currently... Like I'm working with uh, with a London an organization in London, so I'm not really like affiliated for the ministry anymore. Okay. Two years ago, I I left my uh, my position, uh, but we're working still on some of my PhD projects regarding stigma, mental health, and other topics. And so you will continue once you go back there. You will continue the work on advocating. For... Of course, yeah, yeah. And now you have. You're, you've done your PhD, so you have more data to... Uh... Exactly, exactly. This is like, I think it's it's my passion. It's something I really enjoy to do. And I'm learning a lot, even with interviews with patients. That has been like, really like life-changing for me. And uh, Hala, what, what are your plans after uh, VCU? So the program ends in a week, but I'm extending my stay here because, as I mentioned, I have a job with the Virginia Opioid Abatement Authority. Yeah. I'll be back in Beirut in October, hopefully. Uh, I plan to have a new position in the organization I work for, hopefully, and uh, to spread the awareness on prevention sciences because there's a lot of efforts in the region and a lot of funds in the region that are being um, put into prevention, but um, not all of them are evidence-based. And if they're not evidence-based, this means that they are less effective. And if they're less effective, then we have funding that is going uh, down, the, down, down the line without uh, really right. being right. Uh, uh, effective with our youth. So I plan to um, expand this field, prevention field in the MENA region and have more youth engaged in prevention sciences, maybe affiliated with uh, universities here in the, in, in the US in general, because I've met a lot of professionals throughout this year. Um, and unfortunately, I the main question that I had, why don't you work in the Middle East and North African region? And their answer was consistent among different organizations, be it universities, be it governmental entities, we don't have a focal point in the Middle East and North African region. So hopefully, uh, hopefully Mental Arabia or myself or however that goes in the future will be the focal point for uh, Western entities to be working in the Middle East and North African region to expand this field and make it more a uh, more prominent field. Exactly, because there's a lot of evidence-based interventions in the Western world, but that doesn't mean it translates, no. especially mental health, exactly to different cultures. So it's Obviously. important to get evidence-based data. And it's not only about the culture; it's about the intra-culture. Even in Lebanon, let's uh, let's be realistic. What works in the south doesn't work in the north, or what doesn't work in Mount Lebanon and doesn't work in uh, the the Bekaa region. Right. So right. each area has its own specific specific context. So how about different regions or different areas? Areas, knowing the, the MENA region and its diversity. Exactly. exactly. What works in Lebanon even probably does not work in Syria or does not work Definitely, in Georgia. Yeah. Which the All programs are adapted. So, All programs right. that are uh, that we implement as an organization must be adapted to the context. Uh, even for children, the examples, for instance, in Palestine are not about a, a small girl playing or, or with a toy or something. They're about uh, a boy probably throwing sto stones, for instance, when we are talking about violence. So the examples change, the concepts remain the same. So we, there is fidelity to the intervention. Definitely, there's always fidelity to the intervention, the evidence-based practices, but there will always be an adaptation to the, to the cultural context that we're working in. Right, right. 
Okay. Ziad, what are your... Uh... Yeah, you already have plans, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm in the global health arena. Right. And uh, my, my passion has been different topics. And uh, right now, I really try uh, to, to play a role as a catalyst in terms of how to help and support others um, to... Like I believe every person has a gem inside and how to unlock these gems to, to contribute for the betterment of the world. So I work in different topics really. Um, so I don't have a particular plan, but as once you get into the academia, you become start to think about different things. But the, the, the part of substance use prevention is, I think it's very important because once you work in the children, this is the future society, and they are very important. This is the foundation of the society. Are you involved in any projects in Lebanon or? Uh, no, because I have been away from Lebanon for a while. Okay, yeah, thanks. Thanks to all of you for coming. And uh, I mean, Hela and Resha, your, your work is very inspiring. And also it's inspiring, like you all, you all, you both have families and you're, you're doing your PhDs, you're doing uh, your, your projects and you're trying to improve actually the level of knowledge that you have to help help in the region and that's very inspiring to everyone and Ziad thank you for introducing us to sure, Hela and Resha yes, uh, especially thank you to Ziad for actually right. insisting on <laughs> doing this uh, <laughs> three-way podcast so thank you so much Ziad for your support or throughout I mean we, we also met Ziad uh, throughout the conference yeah that's what you're saying so, yeah <laughs> just interesting <laughs> the four of us just met and then we're here on a podcast yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> actually like both of you like I feel overwhelmed with the support when I see any Lebanese outside Lebanon. And this is very inspiring also to see you like succeeding with all the challenges, with all sometimes the stigma towards uh, Middle Eastern, like working outside the region. So, yeah. Uh, uh, but we need you back home. Please <laughs> so come back home. We need some support. <laughs> we can. <laughs> I went back, I came back, so... <laughs> I've done my share, no, but uh, yeah, but I think also also Lebanon like leads to I think just the way the way Lebanon is it leads to uh, uh, resilience, right? Like you you're always trying to find your way or navigate your way in multiple things. So when Lebanese like leave the country, they're they're very adaptable. That that could be one of the things that they're well equipped. They're well equipped exactly <laughs> with the skills to <laughs> yeah. All right, thanks to all of you. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you very much. Thank you.